Welcome to Spirit of the Midwest, a show featuring interviews and stories that expose the deep values and pride found in the heart of America. My name is Wesley Noble, and I'm here today with my co-host, CK Hicks. And we are here with Brandon Reich, who is a graphic artist and does a lot of a kind of a throwback to the traditional graphic artist in the way that it used to be known, or maybe even the purest sense of it. Uh, but he, he has a huge amount of work, and it's all fantastic, does a lot of band work and so forth, which we're really excited to talk to him about. So Brandon, first, thanks for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Happy to be on. So right away, I, I got to ask, uh, when we were talking just before the pre-roll and we said, you know, how would you like to be referred to? You said graphic artist. And you use that term kind of a throwback to the more traditional understanding of graphic art. So how how would you label yourself or even categorize yourself in in that way uh, as far as is is it is it like you know a generational thing or is it a uh, a style thing like what what categorizes the way that you really appreciate the way you work? Well, I guess with the label graphic design, it's sort of something that it, like there's so many graphic designers today, and and it's so easy to do a few things and then call yourself a graphic designer because you can go to any like industry and. Sometimes just the the basic title of graphic design puts you really low on the totem pole mm. inside that um, inside that firm or whatever. And then you could be creative director, and then um, creative director is kind of broad. And sometimes a creative director means that you're uh, more like accumulating work from other creatives and stuff like that. And then creative is just sort of this really broad term. Um, so. I think that the idea of like a graphic artist, it, it seems to like encapsulate what I do a little bit more because I kind of realized there's a difference between illustrator and designer and um, an artist is somewhere just, it's, you know, it's the bigger broad umbrella. Mm. Um, illustrators, they sort of like create stuff from complete scratch. Um, you know, they, they create something that wasn't, that didn't exist before illustrations. Designers are sort of using you know, established fonts, established graphics, um, established colors or textures, whatever, and kind of making decisions on where all those things go. So I kind of just, I like the term graphic artist as something that was, uh, it just felt a little bit more real to what I'm doing. While I can't call myself a fine artist by any means, and I can't really call myself a illustrator necessarily. Um, well, I'm definitely not solely an illustrator. Graphic artist just, I don't know, it, there's something a little more blue collar about, yeah. um, about mm. graphic artists. And, um, you know, I feel like my work is done in a, you know, in a work shirt as opposed to something more sophisticated than that. So gotcha. graphic artists, for whatever reason, um, you know, I kind of, uh, dusted the term off, um, probably back in the eighties, there's a lot more people using the word graphic artist. So, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I was just writing out, designing some business card or a web header or whatever, um, Instead of putting graphic designer there or freelance graphic designer, I just put graphic artist and I've stuck with it. It felt it feels right, but as you can tell by my rambling, it really doesn't matter what the label is. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's it's cool. Like there's some there's some neat stuff, you know. We um there's and there's some people who are talking about it today and kind of the throwing back to making sure that we're not just putting a gradient behind a piece of text or right, uh, you yeah. know, it, like there there is something to this that that should be tangible and should be something that we can great you know grasp and uh and i think that that those as as you say that you know kind of that throwback to that old term kind of roots it in something that is more timeless so i i, yeah. I think it's great and it shows in your work i mean i the uh and i i have to ask you now just how did you 
how did you get to where you are to where you've produced so much work for so many bands? I mean, I'm looking here and you've got shine down and you know angels and airwaves and all these like all these people that i've listened to for so many years and you've done shirts and everything like what how'd you get there well um so i'm 32 now and uh you know my um you know i've been an artist you know i've been in it was the first thing that i was interested in when i was four years old my mom recognized that i had an artistic talent and you know her and my dad did everything they could to facilitate that so um i was just kind of that gave me an identity early as my artistic talent so you know for, for as long as i can remember what i wanted to do with my life was be an artist for a living i didn't know how in the world someone would be an artist for a living um all i knew at that time was someone who painted pictures or something like that and uh, like thomas kincaid type of <laughs> things that that would be an artist for a living or something but i just knew that this is what i love to do and so by the time we were, um, my friends and I were 13, we started a band and, um, which was a really, really young time to start a real band, yeah. but somehow we did it. And, um, so my band, uh, you know, we needed flyers, we needed logos, we needed, you know, um, t-shirts and stickers and all that stuff. And obviously me being the artistic one, um, I was the guy to do it. So I kind of just wrapped myself up in designing band logos and designing flyers and all of the graphics and stuff that surround a band um i was kind of fascinated by it so by the time we were 18 years old we actually signed to a record label um a record label called tooth and nail in seattle and uh, we put out uh, we put out three records over the course of our career and we toured the country we went overseas and we did all that stuff so in that um in that experience we uh you know met a bunch of other bands and the bands liked our merch and they wanted to know who designed it and i said um i did and hmm. they said can you design some for us sure and so that was sort of the whole thing snowballed and then after a while a lot of these bands you know as the bands get bigger they deal with bigger companies that kind of facilitate all this merchandise so now um the majority of my work comes from these merchandising companies and okay. i'm um you know, I'm on their list of top freelancers to um, to churn all this work out. So, you know, any week I'll be designing stuff for Carrie Underwood to like, you know, to like Slipknot or I don't know. I've got Muse and P.O.D. and, um, <laughs> you know, 21 Pilots and Neil Young and all those oh people. That, that's that's the docket for this week. And so it's always stuff like that. And uh so it's a big range, man. I mean, sometimes, like I said, I'll be doing some really gnarly metal stuff. Mm -hmm. And then um, someday I'm doing some more laid back, folksy country type stuff. So that's it just, keeps me on my toes. That's so cool. Yeah. That's just the, the, the wide variety. I mean, as you're going through your list, it, it's just like you have one who's way over here and the one who's way over here. And like, I imagine, you know, that's got to keep it interesting for you. So because, you know, you can bring your unique style to it. And I'm I'm not a designer by trade, but like. I know you, you know, you bring whatever you have to the table each time, but man, having to switch, you know, especially within a week of going between like Slipknot and Carrie Underwood. I mean, like, yeah. how do you do that? Well, I always, I don't know. I think there's value and versatility. And I think that that's where I kind of divide myself from illustrators. So illustrators, they'll really concentrate on having one specific style, one defining style, which is a very valuable thing. Like if you stick to one style, people will soon start, um, you know, contacting you to do that one style mm. and it's very valuable. But for whatever reason, I just saw more, I don't know, I was more interested in being versatile. I think that I looked up to 
more design like firms than I did one single designer. I never found one single designer and said I wanted to be just like them. I more enjoyed looking at like a whole design firm's portfolio and seeing that all the work was so different and somehow they could do that and then they could do something completely different from it. That was really interesting to me and I've been lucky to stay super busy um, for this past decade and so it stretches me from this style to this style to this style. I guess the bad thing is I don't know what my style is, <laughs> but the good thing is that I can do a whole lot of different styles and and you know and I make a living doing it. So oh, yeah. um, it's a valuable. I, I guess it's a valuable asset to be this versatile. Yeah. Uh, so as a graphic artist for these ginormous bands, uh, what what do you do? What's your output for them? Um, my output, you, you mean specifically, what do I, like the, like a deliverable, yeah. the amounts or what do I actually provide? Or like, I know that you said that you do like, um, some graphic tees and stuff like that, but like, um, is that like your main focus then for these bands? Well, so I care a lot about workflow and simplicity I, and I want to keep my work churning out. So my final product is a simple file, a Photoshop file or an illustrator file, whatever. And I send that on, um, you know, I email that file or email a link to that file and that's it. That's the, you know, I get a, I get a brief in the, in the, an email and I come up with concepts and after those concepts, we kind of like revise some of the concepts and then we come up with a, you know, we find out what's approved and then I send off the approved file and I wipe my hands of it and that's done. And so, so with that system keeping, you know, I try to kind of force every client into that system. I kind of dictate my workflow on them. You know, like if I'll start with a new client, I'll kind of have to go through a phase of this is how I work and you know, this is the way I would like the briefs formatted when I get them and if I can get all that information, if I can get all that uh, you know, everything formatted the way it is, then man that thing just goes right into the machine and um, I can churn that stuff out quickly. And mm. you know, so 80% of my work, it's, it's pretty much formatted like that and it works into my workflow really well. So, uh, yeah, my work becomes much more like an assembly line, um, than, I don't know. I always talk about artists who frolic around in a field and I'm just not one of those people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like regimented, I get this thing done. Um, and there's definitely an assembly line mentality to the way that I work. And is that, uh, that file that output in the context of like a shirt or like an album cover or a band logo like i'm just trying to get an idea uh, yeah, of what just, it looks it like depends. In i mean most of the time it's like a, i have a canvas that's 16.5 by 20.5 inches um that is the size that hot topic dictates hmm. so they're sort of like the number one retailer of oh. band merchandise um you know, at this, you know, but the other one is obviously tour merch, actually going to a band's concert and buying the t-shirt there. So I just work in a canvas that size and I send out a file and I call out the colors that are on that file. You can, you'll probably notice that most of my work is, you know, less than three colors. Um, I keep, I keep the work super simple as far as the coloring goes. Um, and that's kind of dictated by screen printing in general. Uh, if you come up with a design that needs like eight colors, then, um, the printers are going to hate you. And then the band, they're really going to be bummed when they get the bill for the eight color t-shirt when the one color t-shirt sold the best and it was cheaper to print. So hmm. kind of the economics of the screen printing industry has really dictated my style, um, quite a bit. My, um, style is more bold and simplistic because 
it's on a t-shirt and then it's not so colorful because, um, there's only one color, uh, for, you know, for screens for, you know, it's a cheaper, it's a cheaper shirt to print. And I don't know, my classic t-shirts are, are one color. So sure. if possible, I try to keep things to one or two colors. Well, mm. and, it, and I think it's interesting. I saw in your, um, your fun facts about yourself, you had, uh, you, you wanted to add a disclaimer to Paul Rand's quote that don't try to be original, just try to be good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it really jives with a lot of what you're saying of you want to bring in kind of that personal style that you have and make that, make an original work. Uh, but then the simplicity of it is, you know, let's strip away the stuff that isn't needed and, and just leave like the essence of what the band is, you know, and, and, and just, totally. I, I love that. I think that's just such a, a great, because then you get a clean result each time. You know, you're never yeah. going to get a templated result. And that, um, I'm I'm in the web industry and I see a lot of templates. And so it's refreshing to hear someone who's a designer and, and say, you know, yeah, let's just bring something to it and uh, make each each work unique. So, uh, so you know, one of the things we love to do is hear a little bit about the kind of because I mean you're a um, you're an Ohio native, yeah, and. Uh, you had a graduating class of 83 people I see on your bio, which is just amazing. And so one of the things that we love is to kind of try and draw out um, what about living inside kind of the greater Midwest area uh, gave you that personal flair or that, you know, that creative touch that you have. And you say you've kind of always been into this kind of stuff. So um, how do you, do you feel like the, the pace of life or the size of town or whatever, like how did those things influence you in your kind of creative journey or process? Well, there's a lot of layers to this answer. I got a, I could write a book about mm. the question you just asked me. Oh, you um, should. <laughs> yes. I might. I might. Um, so let me see. All right. So my town, like I said, it's, it's called New Lebanon, Ohio. Um, it's just west of Dayton, Ohio. So mm-hmm. Dayton, Ohio is the, is the city around us. Um, so if you go west from Dayton, Ohio, um, if you're downtown Dayton, you drive west, you'll go through a town called Drexel and that's pretty ghetto. Uh, and then you'll have my town west or my town, New Lebanon, and then you go further west and there's a town called West Alexandria. Now with Drexel being very ghetto and West Alexandria being almost all farmland, um, New Lebanon gets stuck in the middle of those two. So hmm. I like to say on one side is Eminem and on the other side is Toby Keith. So I grew up somewhere in the middle of that whole thing. And, um, and obviously, you know, it's a small town. I love the small town. Um, it's all I knew. So that was just the way we were. So we never, I never really, I don't know. I never like had any reason to look down on our, on our town. I loved our town. Like I had an amazing childhood growing up. I had one of those childhoods where you, um, you know, you, you wake up and you get on your bike and you ride around all day long. You go to this friend's house and then you two go to your next friend's house and you two go to your next friend's house and you guys are riding bikes around all day. Um, I did that sort of thing. And, um, so I had a great childhood and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I didn't really, I couldn't rely on, you know, name brand stuff to like, you know, be my character. My character was, I've, you know, I found an identity in my art. And, you know, being known as a good artist was, you know, that was very rewarding for me. And there was a lot of, um, you know, I got a lot of my confidence from the fact that I was good at art. And later when the band came along, that was even more identity. So by the time that, you know, um, my parents could afford to get me Nike shoes, I just didn't care to get Nike shoes anyways, Mm -hmm. because I was like a punk rocker by then. It didn't matter. And, um, 
but I think there's this sense of humility that um, I grew up with because, you know, when there would be, you know, the kids from the other schools that would come and, you know, play sports, it would be like, well, I don't have what you have. And you're looking down on me as this hmm. hick school or redneck school or whatever you want to call us. Um, so I didn't really have any like I wasn't the cool kid. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't meaning like our, I guess I should say our school wasn't the cool school. Our school wasn't the school that was like good at all the sports and there was no other like, you know, by association, I was making no name for myself. So any name, any like reputation had to be built on my own character and my own talent. So I think there's a small town humility that's going to keep me from, um, for my ego to get too big or for me to get too sophisticated or anything like that. You know, no matter how much success I have, I'm still just a kid from New Lebanon, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's this humility that's built into that. Now, I don't know if it's humble to talk about how humble you are. <laughs> uh, so, so, but you know, it definitely shaped me and, um, my, you know, Dayton, Ohio was kind of established. There's a lot of people from Kentucky that came up to Dayton and obviously a lot of locals that were there for, um, the GM plant. So we manufactured cars and when Dayton had its heyday, it was because we were manufacturing automobiles for the rest of the country. And, you know, this was a time where people who worked at these auto factories were making really, really great, um, you know, annual incomes. They were making a lot of money building cars. So there was a lot of pride in this manufacturing. There was a lot of pride in this um, assembly line that, you know, we, you know, you get done with work at five o'clock and they made a great product. Mm. Um, actually, there's a um, there's an HBO documentary on. Dayton's main auto plant. It's called uh, The Last Truck. So you can go to HBO Go or HBO Now or whatever and look up. It's called The Last Truck. And you can get a really, really good feel of where I came from and, you know, what we grew up around. So my grandparents, they worked at that plant. Um, and the reason I was in Ohio and not Kentucky was because of those grandparents. The reason my parents met was because my grandparents came up from Kentucky. So, um, you know, my mom, when, um, one of her first jobs when we were kids, um, it was another auto plant and I think she made steering wheels all day. And I knew that food was being put on my table by my two parents who had very blue collar jobs. So to me, work there was a, um, there was sweat attached to the idea of work. There was exhaustion attached to the idea of work. Work was never like wearing, uh, you know, a suit and tie sitting at a clean desk in an office that like whatever that sophisticated version of work was, it didn't make sense to me. So I think there's something in the back of my mind all the time about, you know, if you're going to make a living doing something, um, you have to like, it has to be something that's going to exhaust you. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, you know, I, I read plenty of business books that would tell me otherwise, but you know, I churn out all of this stuff. There's, there's days where most people will not believe the amount of stuff that I churn out. And at the end of that day, you know, I'm massaging my temples and I'm squeezing, you know, right between my eyes and I'm rubbing my face cause I'm exhausted. And now, I'm not going to act like this was as hard a work as my mom or dad had to do to put food on my table, but it's it's hard work. It's creative work. Um, it's demanding. It's a lot. It's pushing myself more than I ever thought I could, um, and I do that on a daily basis. So 
you know, at the end of the day, I look at my house and I look at my property and I look at, you know, the life I've built for myself. And I feel like it's something that I earned through hard work. And that feels good. I don't feel like I took a shortcut. I don't feel like I, um, you know, I didn't get any handouts to get where I am. Mm. And um, it feels good because I feel like I I did it with hard work. Sure, it's graphic design, but um, it it feels like hard work to me. See, I I just, I, my hat's off to you because I I was raised in a similar home where I watched, uh, my mom stayed home with us, but then, uh, you know, I watched my dad do whatever he had to do to make sure that we had what we needed and we're just raised with that understanding of that I think flows through a lot of the Midwest of, you know, the effort you put in, you can get an equal return if you're diligent and you're smart about it and you uh, you ask for help when you need it. But, you know, it's, it's directly tied to the amount of sweat equity that's within uh, totally. whatever you're doing. And so I just, I, I, I hear you. And I, I love the way that you put that about make a living from something that exhausts you. That's really excellent. So, yeah. I mean, I, I know that I grew up that way and it's, this is a question that uh, gets me sometimes. So how do you take that, you know, you take your, your pursuits and you're rubbing your temples and stuff and take some time and recharge. Like how, what, what do you do to relax or recharge or, or kind of unplug so you're not rubbing your temples and, and, you know, you kind of get a deep breath and, and get back into it. Well, the short answer is nothing. I'm still, I mean, I'm on a treadmill. I'm on a hamster wheel all the time. And, um, but lately, I guess about past three months, I've taken time to meditate for 15 minutes every morning. Mm -hmm. So my morning routine is wake up, go into the shower, get dressed, go downstairs, get coffee, walk out onto our back porch. And I sit there with headphones on and I use an app called Calm, C-A-L-M. And I do like a 15 minute meditation where essentially it's just me trying to stop thinking about stuff and breathing (laughs) for 15 minutes. It's not, you know, it's not that hippie or it's not too, um, you know, it's not too new agey. It's just a real simple sit down and relax for 15 minutes. And that's really what I need. I need to get to a point where I can just get my brain to stop or at least, um, get my brain to stop stressing. Um, yeah. I definitely established a pretty stressful workflow for myself. And I mean, I'm still trying to fix it. I'm always trying to fix it. But the problem is that when you love what you're doing, um, that, that label of being a workaholic doesn't, doesn't feel so like insulting. Yep. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, if you can do, you know, it's like somebody who plays golf all day or somebody who like, I don't know, like Whittles Wood or whatever somebody's hobby is. Like I get paid to do my hobby. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's my, my workaholism is a little more justified, not fully justified, but a little more justified. Um, so yeah, the other, what was the other part of that question that you asked before? No, I mean, I think, I think you, I think you answered it. The biggest thing is, is like you said, it's that when you, when you're raised with that kind of sweat equity equals results, mentality and and then you do something you find something where you can genuinely dig in and go man I love this uh it's really you know I think the relaxing or the uh the the rest or the deep breaths you look different to each person and and yeah. you know and I I love the idea of just kind of that everyday quiet time where uh you know whether that's listening to you know whatever sounds come through that app for 15 minutes in the morning or for some of us it might be uh, morning prayer time or, you know, whatever it is, like having something that you get a regular interval 
of downtime, I think is just such a big deal. And it's so overlooked in our society. Like even the way that Sundays have changed, you know, historically through American history, where it used to be just kind of understood that people weren't going to be doing much because that was their time to take a break. And, you know, that, that just, that goes a long way though, because that's the mental health and everything that brings and the creative. I imagine you see a, a fairly good boost in your creative energy when you get up from that and you can, you're like, okay, now I can take on anything. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that if I don't see a boost in creativity, I definitely see a decline in creativity when things are a little bit too mashed together. There Mm. is a moment where the deadlines are too crazy that I can't even be creative in those. So it's, you know, there's projects that'll come along and be like, we really need this today. It's like, well, there's no room for me to be creative and there's no room for me to enjoy this today. So I'm just going to get you work that solves your problem. And, um, there's not really going to be any inspiration behind it. It's just getting it done. But, you know, sometimes that work is fine and sometimes that work is, is really good too. So, um, I, I go back and forth. I think one of my biggest struggles is trying to, um, trying to decide if I'm doing better work, if even, you know, if I'm doing it quick, I think there, I I think I can make the statement that getting more time doesn't necessarily make work better. Mm. I think that there's instincts that we have that we can rely on if we have to turn something out in an hour or if we have to turn something out in a month. Um, I think that those instincts, those initial instincts that we'd probably throw together in an hour are still pretty good. And I don't know how much more we're going to polish them up with another 29 days. Um, I think that letting a project sit around for too long is going to cause you to like overcomplicate it and start adding things when really the essence of what you're doing should be taking away as much as you possibly can. Um, I've done these talks recently and, you know, I'll do a little lettering thing just for like one point of the talk as opposed to just having keynote typed out. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, one of my little points was simplicity takes courage. And Mm -hmm. what that means to me is that, uh, you know, there's something about adding things to our work that sort of like devalues it or devalues the original idea. I believe in my original idea and I have enough courage in my original idea to just take that and say, when you told me your, you know, your problem, I did this, this, and this, and this works for you. Hmm. Now I could sit here and keep polishing it up and add some things and and second guess myself and all that stuff. But I've been doing this long enough to know that that's not going to make it better. It, I think also like designers think that they're kind of trying to impress their client with how much time they spend on something. Um, I don't. I, I'd rather impress with impress them with maybe how much thought was put into something, but how much time was put into something I think is kind of, I don't know, counterproductive. Like Mm. if you can solve someone's problem quickly, then that also makes you a valuable asset. So I think my clients use me because I'm reliable, I'm available and I'm quick. And I think there's value in being fast, um, with projects. And I know there's plenty of designers that would fight me on that. Um, but me personally, for the for the success that I've had in this industry, speed um, speed is pretty valuable. So in the in the current kind of flow and and um, system or ecosystem of design today, and even maybe within the people who are not just doing the design but also appreciating the design, do you notice kind of generational differences between you know I'm I'm about to turn thirty this year, so between our generation 
and someone who might you know be in their real early 20s like haha like me oh yeah like wesley so uh do you notice differences in in even just within the midwesterners around you but um or within your industry or however you'd like to to take that but i'd be interested to hear if you have thoughts on kind of the the pacing and and you know the sweat equity type differences that are uh I don't know. It just, it feels different when I'm, uh, nothing against Wesley, but like it, it feels different, you know, when you're, when you're talking to someone who's in their early twenties to someone who's maybe 30, 32, 33, uh, yeah. because it just seems like there was just enough difference. I don't know. I don't know. Do you, do you notice that at all? Definitely. I, I'm fascinated by millennials. So Wesley, I'm fascinated by your age group. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, so I, I don't mean to, hopefully nothing, nothing is insulting or anything like that. I think that every, Every generation has to kind of scratch their head at the the next generation. You know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. think that with the such growth in technology and how everything is so different from decade to decade, generations that we used to call 30 years now make a little more sense in like 10-year gaps or five-year gaps even. Um, you can take, you know, the five-year age differences and really tell a lot of, you know, tell a lot of differences between those people. But it's also growing up. It's not necessarily people who were born in the 80s versus the 90s versus the aughts or whatever. It, that's not necessarily the thing. It's just kind of at different ages, you have different um, experiences and different perspectives. But I think that, you know, going back to something you said about the spirit of, you know, kind of the, the spirit of the Midwest, for me, one of those big things that separate us from New York and L.A., is um, we're kind of brought up with this idea of zero entitlement. And uh, and that's kind of something that's, you know, has rang true at, throughout my life is that there's zero entitlement. Like I don't deserve you to give me anything. Exactly. I don't deserve anyone to, um, you know, I don't know. Like I don't have a college degree and I'm glad I don't have a college degree because I think sometimes that college degree is really just false experience. I think that someone will show up to a new job with their degree and say, um, since I have this, you now need to give me this level of respect. You need to give me this, 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 and this. And I just don't see it that way. Like nobody owes me anything. So the Mm. only thing that I'm going to get, I have to work my butt off and get it. And um, so I can't, that's not like a blanket statement on millennials. I think there's a lot of people in different age groups that will do that. But I think that I think that this uh, surplus of technology and capability has sort of like, it's taken the idea um, off of the work you put in to um, the things you can come up with. So I think a lot of times um, millennials, or I don't know if that's a term that people use. Oh yeah, it totally is. (laughs) uh, um, Yeah, so okay, so millennials will be really proud of their ideas, of their possibilities and things that can happen. Well, you know, I would say the generation older than me is really proud of the work that they can do, the amount that they can sweat and actually churn things out. So sometimes it's like there's a million ideas for something, but the ability to make nothing. So I would rather, well, I don't know. I want to find the balance between it. I'm a, I'm a, I was born in 1983. And when I look Wikipedia up, um, they put me right between Gen X and millennials. So yeah. I think the break is 82, 83, somewhere around there. So I was born... Um, January 6th. So that is um, six days before I was born. It was 1982. (laughs) So I'm right there, 82, 83. So that puts me right in the middle. And I have, I I guess I would say I have the work ethic of a Gen Xer, but maybe I have the ideas and the Hmm. entrepreneurial spirit of a millennial. And, um, Hmm. you know, I've met a lot of millennials who have all this entrepreneurial spirit, but they 
they don't really know how to put it into practice. They just know how to have the idea. Um, but then I'll meet Gen Xers who can work their butt off, but they don't know how to think up a new idea or think up a business idea or something like that. And so there's some balance in between there. Hmm. Um, there's value to both. Like there's value to a generation that, you know, has always seen technology as an extension of their self. For me, I watch this internet like become popular. I watch Windows 95 come out. I watched, <laughs> you know, I watched all this stuff happen at a time where, you know, two years before I was, I was thinking all I could design graphics on were with markers on a piece of poster board and cut that out and then place it over top of another image. Like I was actually doing the physical work that Photoshop and Illustrator now do. Um, but so millennials now, they've just seen it as always that way. Facebook and the internet and all that stuff has always been there. Um, so maybe they take it a little more for granted. Um, mm. I think that as time goes on, we're going to forget more and more of what it's like to work with our hands and what it's like to sweat through our work. Um, that's why you're going to see all these like hipster pop-ups of, you know, artisan goods and handmade things because it's kind of a response to being like, well, I've been on my phone for so long and now I've come up with this amazing idea to not be on my phone today and make <laughs> something with leather or make something out of wood as if it's this brand new idea that people haven't been doing for ages. So it's gonna, it's gonna be constant, this constant response of, okay, we've gone too far technologically um, I have to strip things back down and be more primitive and have a more primitive approach to creating things. And it's always going to be that push and pull. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I've got stuff to learn from millennials for sure. Um, and But I do think millennials have um, have to learn from the people that come before them. They have to learn what it's like to truly exhaust yourself with work before they try and come up with an idea that they don't actually know how to um, do the technical work for. That's uh, so good. Mm. Now, seriously, when are you writing that book? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. One of these days. And ha I have a question. So like as a millennial, <laughs> right? That's that's what I am. Yeah. Um, how, how, how does my age group learn that hard work and get that balance that you are striving for, would you say? Okay, let me ask you a question. Yeah. How would you how would you say that you don't know the hard work? What what is why would you say that you don't know that work? Well, I don't think there is anything at all. I think it's just like doing hard work. I think it's more of a like a mentality that you just adopt and you just do it and there's just not a whole lot of technique to it. Yeah. Is that no, I, I just, I'm, I think that, I think that millennials have a odd situation where they kind of got brought up without having to, um, I don't know, like, did you guys have chores growing up? Did you oh, guys yeah. have to like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds really pretentious for me to say this stuff. I, I guess I don't mean it that way. I guess it's like, I only, the, as far as I knew, the only way you can make money was by working your butt off. And I think that millennials have learned that you can make money by creating Facebook and then right. get like billions of dollars. So for me, it was like when I was a kid, I, I've always talked about this with my wife because there was this year where, you know, I mowed one lawn for $20 and then 
um, I really started doing the math. I'm like, man, if I mow this many, <laughs> you know, I added up the math was that if I, I can make $2,500 that summer in three months, if I mowed lawns at this rate or whatever, I mowed like one or two more lawns after I realized all that I, I, you know, but it was this idea of like, that's the only way to make money. So now there's this residual, um, or passive income that is now available where if you create one good idea and you do the work once and then you continue promoting it and pushing it and spending all that time, um, forcing this thing in the eyes of other people, then one day you'll get a big payoff. It's even like you can have a startup and not put a valuation on the startup or not make any money with that startup. Then a company comes in that wants to buy you and then they'll place the valuation on you. So it, it's this thing of like, I've never experienced a passive income. The most passive income I've ever experienced was something through like an online class. So that was, I did the work once and then I got paid multiple times later. Other than that, man, I'm churning out t-shirt designs mm-hmm. um, and that are relatively, that pay relatively low to make an annual income with. Um, so the only way I know is to constantly push out goods and to, and to create one thing and to sell it for one price and then create another thing and sell it for that price and, you know, one after another, one after another. So that's sort of like the basis of what I view work as. Now, with that said, I've had plenty of peers who create one product and then just make tons of money off that one product. So they work once and get paid several times. You know, Mm. I work once and get paid once. I work once and get paid once. So I think that there's so much opportunity now that millennials feel like they have to take advantage of that, which I don't blame them for. So like, I think there's a lot more ideas. I just have to make this one app and it's going to blow up. I have to make this one stupid YouTube video and mm-hmm. it's going to blow up. But I just have to do this one thing and then the money is just going to come rolling in. And for some people it has for Mark Zuckerberg, it did for, you know, Kevin Seistrom, the guy who made Instagram, it did for all those people. Like, so I think that the fact that that temptation, I shouldn't call it temptation, it's not a negative, but that um, opportunity is on the table completely scatters a millennial's mind on what work is and what occupation is. That, uh, yeah, I think that's super a super healthy way to look at it because it's kind of the difference between the residual income, whereas you you look at it as more of you have residual creativity, you know, you have residual effort that you can apply and that's what you're going to get returns on is that, you know, get tapping into that reserve, creating right, a new yeah. thing. And it allows you to fail a little bit more, you know, without as much risk because now you can create 20 shirts and if one of them doesn't sell, you have 19 more as right. opposed to spending 20 years on one thing and then, you know, that being it. Yeah. My creativity didn't fail. My creativity still there. Just one little product that I made with my creativity didn't mm. work. So it's kind of like my creativity and my work ethic becomes the commodity. I've looked at the work ethic as, you know, this was something I conditioned myself to be able to do. I mean, if you would have told me 10 years ago to create, you know, 12 t-shirt designs in one day, my brain would have exploded. (laughs) But now that's kind of a norm. You know what I mean? That's not really that intimidating that I have to do that much because I've got this workflow set up. I've learned how to work. I learned the right tools, all that stuff. Um, So I work fast now. But so that creativity and this whole workflow system and this whole way that I work becomes this um, this asset that you can kind of plug some stuff into. So if your company needs rebranded, well, I just use this machine that I've 
been working on forever. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And I just turned and I, I refer to the machine a lot because that's kind of what I've turned myself into. I just send it into the machine. I'll have, I'll be emotionless. I'll just get it done for you. You know mm. what I mean? I'll be low maintenance. I'm not going to email you back complaining about not being able to be creative or not letting my voice be heard <laughs> and that stuff. I just get the work done. There's not enough time to, uh, there's not enough time to just gripe about these projects. I just, I get it done and I'm reliable for people. And mm. I've, um, you know, here I am and I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio is not a blue collar city by any means, you know, like, um, most of the, most of the, you know, big industry around Columbus is, well, it's the Ohio state university, it's nationwide insurance, but then it's also like the limited group and Abercrombie and Fitch. So half of mall stores, um, they're pretty much based right here in Columbus mm. from limited express Abercrombie, like justice and brothers and, uh, you know, bath, you know, like not bad bath, but like, uh, whatever the other bath mm. thing <laughs> is with candles and stuff that's all based here. And, um, so the mentality here in the city is a little more, um, I'll just say white collar. Uh, so it's a little bit different here. So here I am just still trying to use my Dayton, Ohio roots and my blue collar roots. And I kind of live a little bit more of a white collar lifestyle, I guess, you know what I mean? Um, meaning like I don't actually get my hands dirty, um, for the work that I do. But, you know, when my parents came home, their hands were filthy and they smelled like the factory they had been working in mm. all day. So um, I have to kind of honor that upbringing and honor. I know that my mom, I mean, my mom and dad, they were teenagers when they had my brother and I. So I have to honor that um, that hard work that they did to, uh, you know, so that my brother and I survived. And, you know, my brother and I are are living good lives now because of the sacrifice and the hard work that my parents did. So for yeah. me to have some snobby job today, um, I would feel like I'm dishonoring that. So yeah. I, I try to make sure what I do stays hard work and that I feel like I earned whatever I get. That's great. Mm. And as a last question, uh, what advice would you have for your younger self, Brandon? Well, I guess, I'm a really lucky guy that would say stick to it, you know, yeah. like, um, enjoy it, have fun with it, stay excited about this. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that I haven't made any big, huge mistakes. Like I didn't take any bad career paths. Like I, you know, I got out of my band went before it really screwed anything up. Had I stayed in the, you know, I've been with my wife since I was 16 years old. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, maybe that relationship could have got messed up if I stayed in the band too long. That That's kind of the only threat to my career that I've ever really had was that decision on do I stick with music or do I go back to my main love of design? So for him, um, it's kind of just stick to it, man. Keep doing what you're doing. And mm -hmm. like, I'm so glad that I, you know, took the steps that I took. I'm glad that I didn't get a college degree. I'm glad that I went to a little community college in Dayton and uh, learned the things I needed to and then got out of there. I'm glad I did all that. I don't, you know, I don't have any like credentials that make me feel entitled that I deserve anything. So 
still at 32 and probably when I'm 40 and 50 and 60, I'm still going to feel like I've got to earn every little thing that I get. So Mm -hmm. that's going to give me that extra push to work harder. And, um, this extra push to work harder has now, um, created this operation where I just churn out a lot of work and I'm capable of doing a lot of work. So I'm grateful for that. And looking back at a, um, 10 year career, um, over 10 years now, uh, you know, I'm glad that I've, kept at it. I'm glad that I didn't try to try something different or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm just glad that I just stuck to it and got my head down and kept working. Hmm. Love it. That's really excellent. Well, Hey man, thank you so much uh, for your time. Now I wanted to say real quick that people need to be keeping their eye open. Um, cause you said you're, you're kind of musing over uh, the beginnings of a podcast. Is that right? Yeah, I've got a lot to say and I've got a lot of opinions and, um, you know, there's some really great fusion here between, um, graphic design and the music industry. And that's kind of my whole career has been bouncing between those two. Um, graphic design is one thing, but when you do it in the music industry, there's this whole other thing. So there's bands and how those bands want to be perceived and, you know, how that makes me think about the work and all that stuff. But, also, anytime I try to talk to somebody about graphic design, um, that talk will turn into a talk about life and mm. why we're here and some existential conversation. Um, so I think that, you know, my wife has heard everything. My wife has heard every, you know, every gripe that I have. So instead of driving her nuts or, you know, <laughs> trying to have these heavy conversations with family members when we're getting together for Thanksgiving, maybe it would be better if I just talk into a microphone and hope that there's some public out there in internet land, uh, and podcast world that will take some interest. So, um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I'm still working on the name and working all that on all that sort of thing. I just, I hope there's an audience out there for it. I hope there's people who, um, want to hear what I have to say. And, uh, I hope it's something that I can find some time to be really diligent with. Yeah. Well, I mean, you let us know, cause I, I will definitely listen into that. It just sounds yeah. fantastic. Awesome, man. I need all the help I can get. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, you taking time out of your grind to uh, to talk with us. And for all of you, you can get to know Brandon uh, over at BrandonReich, R-I-K-E dot com, or on the Twitter at uh, BrandonReich. And you can learn more about this show at uh, spiritofthemidwest.fm. Uh, please take a moment if you if you enjoy the show, or even if you don't, uh, leave a review and a rating, and uh, we'd love to hear from you, and it just helps us get found and make our show better. So we'd really appreciate it. But thanks for tuning in, and we look forward for you to join us next time on Spirit of the Midwest. Yeah.